Africa Calling, a bi-monthly podcast with sound-rich reports from our correspondents on the continent. African Voices reporting on African stories produced by Radio France International. Hello and welcome to our Season 2, second episode of the Africa Calling podcast on September 17, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We have some strong stories from our correspondents on the African continent this week, including a report from the Gambia, as a political announcement sent shockwaves among ordinary Gambians who lived under dictatorship. Plus, a look at how one group of former miners in Malawi is still fighting to get their wages from work they did in South Africa more than 30 years ago. And finally, don't forget our special song at the end. Africa Calling. The political atmosphere is heating up in the Gambia ahead of the December 4th presidential election. Earlier this month, President Adama Barra's National People's Party, the NPP, and exiled former dictator Yahya Jame's Alliance for Patriotic Reorientation and Construction, the APRC, announced they have formally signed a coalition agreement. As Sally Jang reports from Banjul, victims of Jame's 22-year dictatorship are disturbed by this arrangement. That was the reaction of APRC supporters after their interim party leader Fabakari Tombonjata announced the formal agreement with Barros NPP. Jata, who was APRC's leader in the parliament during the days of dictatorship, described the party as a victim of similar campaign and hailed the coalition agreement as human rights. Immediately, we began talks with the NPP. Problem upon problem. Insults upon insults. Allegations upon allegations. Spear campaigns against spear campaigns. During the most difficult times, 2017, we surmounted all the difficulties. We, two political parties, sincerely believe that all of us have a right to belong to any political party. In reaction, President Adam Abaro gave a thumbs up to the agreement during a crowded rally, telling his jubilant supporters that the alliance would propel him to election victory in December. I'm thanking the APRC because there's nowhere in the world where a party that defeated the former administration could have joined forces with them to seek a second term. Our situation is unique. Since this alliance was announced, my enemies haven't slept. Though the terms and conditions of the agreement between the two parties have not been disclosed, top APRC official says Barrow would have the right to allow former President Yahya Jame to return to the Gambia. Jame is currently in exile in Equatorial Guinea. He would grant Jame amnesty if he wins the December polls. Adam Barrow's ascendancy to presidency was as a result of brutal dictatorship and heavy-heartedness meted out to Gambians during the Jame regime for more than two decades. For the victims, his decision to form an alliance with the same party that subjected Gambians to pain and suffering is a slap in the face. Among them is Baba Haidara, whose veteran journalist father, Deda Haidara, was assassinated in 2004 by members of Jame's hit squad, the Junglers, allegedly under his authority. Now that the government is um, allying with them, so how are they going to be prosecuting people that you are, you know, joining a party with. So you cannot be, like, prosecuting those same guys who are supporting you. It becomes a bit controversial. In a way or another, justice will be served. We will never give up. That's a thing that we'll never do. Here or wherever we are, to fight the justice, we will do it. 
Analysts and civil society activists have also frowned at the APRC and PP alliance, calling it a desperate move by Barrow to win a second term. Said Matejau is a popular pundit and a political science lecturer at the University of the Gambia. Well, I think this is the most important election. This is a, a very critical election. 2016, we were saying this was the crossroad. This is like, I mean, maybe I would say double crossroad. Um, how are we going to deal with the issue of the victims? How are we going to um, move? Because we're, this period, these five years, we are supposed to be transitioning into a democracy. I see that in terms of practice, we have moved. But in terms of the laws, the issues, we are still stuck um, in the past. And there is a, there's a need for those things to be, um, to be looked at. So this election is going to be critical. It's going to be tense. It's already tense. And, and I think what we need to continue to do is to ensure... Um, that the level playing field that we are all enjoying at this minute, where everybody can freely express themselves, engage, access media. I mean, this needs to continue because at the end of the day, for me, I mean, it doesn't matter who wins, but whether Gambia will win out of this is what is important. The Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission, TRRC, which was set up in the aftermath of James' exit to probe gross human rights abuses during his tenure, it is expected to submit its report to Barrow in a few weeks. Now, hopes for justice for the victims have been dashed by the new political alliance. The TRRC's head of communication, Isa Jalo, says it will be disappointing for the president not to implement the recommendations. The president says you didn't do a good job or whatever. That could be a disappointment from the TRRC's point of view. But failing to implement the report actually has nothing to do with the TRRC. But one must ask now, would anybody reject the report? based on any legal ground. Some victims contacted for this report declined to speak for fear of reprisals if Jame is allowed back to the country under a supposed amnesty program. This shows the level of fear and anxiety in the streets over the NPP and APRC alliance. Reporting for RFI's Africa calling from Banjul, this is Salijay. And to add to the mix, SFL, the former head counsel for the Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission, has thrown his hat into the ring as presidential candidate. All eyes will be on The Gambia on December 4th. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. In Malawi, some 33 years after miners went to apartheid-era South Africa to work in the mines, they are demanding to be paid. From the 1960s to the 1980s, thousands of men went in droves to work, employed by the Temporary Employment Bureau of Africa, or TEBA. In March 1988, the Malawian government withdrew from the TEBA because South African employers claimed they were spreading HIV and AIDS in the country, and they were never paid. Correspondent Benson Kunshazera reports from Blantyre, Malawi's commercial hub, on how the ex-miners are pushing to get their benefits. Those are the sounds of protesters singing songs and carrying placards despite their old age. They marched on the streets putting their lives at risk amid the surge of COVID-19's third wave in Malawi. The group has vowed to continue protesting until they get their money as pensions for the working in South Africa's mine companies. John Inzadi, chairperson of the Kisomo ex-mine workers, told Africa calling that Malawian government should investigate where their money went. Mizadri stressed that this issue has greatly affected the direct dependence of these mining families. He explains. We want to meet President Lazarus Chakwera so that he can help us out. 
We understand the previous regimes failed to give us our benefits. He should also investigate those presidents on how they handled our money. We are in dire poverty. We failed to educate our children. Now we're old. Some ex-miners living out in the villages had their legs and hands amputated while working in South African mines. We are at Chazunda Market situated in the suburbs of Commercial Hub, Plante. Odetta Donisiano, 58, a widow with seven children, was on her way to visit her son Emmanuel at school when we interviewed her. She agrees with Malawi minor head Mizati, saying life is hard since her ex-minor husband died. According to Donisiano, she suffered while her husband was away in South Africa working in the mines. She failed to pay school fees as well as to shelter and accommodate her children. Her only income is from her smallholder farm. She said that her children failed to go to university even though they were selected. And now, her youngest son will have to drop out of secondary school now due to lack of finances. I'm angry because I lost my husband way back. I was one of the women who went to the Chamber of Mines in South Africa to get our money. We were told that they'd already sent it to Malawi. They said people in Mozambique have already received their benefits. But we would like the government to give us our money. I have intelligent children, but they had to drop out because I couldn't pay their school fees. Donisiano says she was one of the few women in the group who went to South Africa demanding their benefits in 2019. George Peeling, political science lecturer at the University of Livingstonia in Equendene, says it was hard for both Malawian and South African government to negotiate on how to process the patients for the ex-miners. Peel says that weak regional framework and complicated dealings with the South African apartheid government delayed the process for the past 33 years. Peel says this is because Malawi had not seriously adopted both domestic and international labor laws. The laws on the books at the time only dealt with civil servants within Malawi. There had been no precedent on laws dealing with Malawians working outside the country. He blames Malawian government for poor record keeping, which has made it hard to follow up on ex-miners for their pensions. What's more, the miners struggled to inform the government what happened, he says. Literacy levels were so much in terms of those who went to work in the mines in South Africa. Most people that went to work in the mines of South Africa, most of them were illiterate. So it was even difficult for them to provide information to the government of Malawi as to whether their employment uh, in South Africa were under the labor laws that were international by that time or that could also provide recognition on labor movements and so forth. According to some ex-minor workers, more than 50,000 ex-minor workers have not been compensated. Malawi's Human Rights Defenders Coalition 
HRDC recently joined the ex-minor protest, saying those who worked are being deprived of their rights. Henderson Inhango, HRDC vice chairperson in the southern region, says they have been following this issue since last year and are helping them demonstrate. Nhango says in some parts of Malawi, they found their people who never received their wages, including those who were maimed while working, continue to suffer. We have been following this issue since last year, and we have done some research in different districts in the southern region and eastern region. So we thought it is wise to help them to deliver their petition because they are facing numerous uh, abuse of human rights because of uh, uh, them waiting for their money. Africa Coring reached out to government officials who declined to be interviewed, but issued a statement signed by Dixon Chunger, Secretary for Labor. The Labor Ministry says that Mines 1970 and claimed benefits preservation provident fund has verified 475 Malawian ex-miners whose payments are ready and awaiting supporting documents. The statement says that 143 ex-miners have been traced, of which 81 have provided full supporting documentation. Their files have since been submitted to the Provident Fund authorities in South Africa, and those miners are waiting to be paid. The Labor Ministry said that earlier this year, the Malawi government approached the South African government for the first time to intervene on the matter in order to speed up the process. The ministry says it is in constant contact with the Provident Fund administrators so that eligible ex-miners should receive their money. It further stressed that COVID-19 restrictions in South Africa have greatly slowed the processing of the claims due to the restrictions imposed to curb the pandemic. It has also dismissed reports that Malawi government has received money for ex-miners. But there are thousands more Malawian ex-miners who still don't know when they will be compensated for their work in South Africa. Reporting for RFI Africa Calling, this is Benson Conchezera and Plantai. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Well, we're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Allison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Allison. What song do you have for us? Well, hi, LA. Now, first of all, the Femua Urban Music Festival has just been running in Abidjan in Cote d'Ivoire after a year's break due to COVID. And it's a huge festival. It was set up by the lead singer of the Ivorian band Magic System some 13 years ago. Uh, it's very important for new and older African talent. And in fact, this year it's opened itself up to some European musicians for the first time. I was really pleased to see that this year uh, there was the return of the South African singer-songwriter Zahara. She gave a 50-minute concert on the 14th of September. Now, she's been off the scene for four years. She had a rather long hiatus for many reasons, but she's made a comeback with a new album, and it's called Nkaba Yam, which means endure, and I've chosen the song Niamizela, which means to endure or persevere. 
and she says that it's a non-traditional take on worship music, and I think it is, and I like it very much, and I hope you do. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much, Alison, and thanks to you for listening to Season 2, Episode 2 of Africa Calling. We'll leave you with the fabulous sounds of Zahara. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. Goodbye for now. (laughs) 